I have no text to read for this morning's service. There are multiple texts that I will read. Why don't we start with prayer? Lord, I thank you for this opportunity. I pray that things would be uh, understood and, and that we'd work through what this means to be worshiping you on this Lord's Day from 9.30 until quarter to 11 or whatever. I just ask that we would um, bring you honor in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I guess if you learn nothing about the Lord's Day worship this morning, I want you to uh, learn this, because I think it creates an attitude change in us about what worship is and where we should be on the Lord's Day. Here it is. God is not the one who benefits from our worship. God is not the one who benefits from our worship. He's not made any better by his people singing praise, by their prayers and tithes and attendance, etc. He's forever without need. He is forever without improvement. He perfectly exists. He is God. So when you show up to worship the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit on the Lord's Day, it's not making Him any better at all or helping Him. You're not doing Him a favor as if He needed anything from you and me. Here's some verses. Acts 17, 24 through 25 says, The God... Who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Romans eleven thirty five and 36 says, Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. This is what the Lord says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things and so they came into being, declares the Lord. We learn from these verses that God is the self-existent one. Theologians use the word aseity. Aseity means that God is. He has life in himself and draws his unending energy from himself. So we can add nothing to him by our worship. We add nothing. Nor can we take anything away from him. It is imperative that we understand this. God is perfect in himself. 
He doesn't need you and me for anything. In Psalm 92, verse 2, not 92, verse 2, Moses states, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. And Moses learned this early on in front of that bush that burned and was never consumed. God brought him this experience when it's where God told him to go rescue the people of Israel. And it's in Exodus 3, 13 and 14. We read there, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me what is his name, what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is God's name. It's the meaning of a theity. The creator who created all that we see and know and experience doesn't need us to complete him. He is independent, uncaused, self-existent, with no need to be changed. He just is. But knowing this about God, what is the Lord's Day worship accomplishing? If that's the case, what are we doing here? Who benefits? Who gets changed? We are the ones who benefit by it. He makes us better on the Lord's Day when we answer His call to worship and confess our sins to Him and get cleaned by His Word and this consecration moment and then commune at His table finally get commissioned and sent out to serve. It's all to benefit us. And God gets the glory for it. Surely. And more on that order of worship in just a minute. Just know that it's all for us. 52 Sundays a year. It's all for us. Our attendance and attitude and attentiveness during worship, they're going to get ordered, they're going to get guided by this order of things, this order of worship, this liturgy. And ultimately, our motivation in worship should be one of gratitude, re-announced gratitude. We are to learn to be grateful if we're not normally. Right? We are to learn to be grateful for all that God does in this service, for we're the beneficiaries of worship, not God. He is our benefactor. Years ago, I read a book by a man named Jeffrey Myers. He helped me to get through some of my thoughts on worship, and actually our order of worship in our bulletin is kind of built upon some of his recommendations. 
prior to that, we never did a, a, a time where we confessed our sins, even. Well, Jeffrey Myers writes this, First and above all, we are called together in order to get, to receive. This is crucial. The Lord gives, we receive. Since faith is receptive and passive in nature, faithful worship must be about receiving from God. He gives, and by faith we receive. We are given his forgiveness, his word, his nourishment, his benediction, etc. We come as those who receive first, and then second, only in reciprocal exchange do we give back what is appropriate as grace as grateful praise and adoration. So in one sense, end quote, so in one sense, worship is very much about us, but it is less about what we do than it is about what God does to us. He meets with us to extend grace. Yeah, I know. You don't see him. And so there is this tendency, this temptation to think that we're just doing this on our own. We're just doing this as a, a remembering things about God type of event. That's not the case. He meets with us to extend grace. When we do not show up for worship, we miss the grace that God brings. Think about that. 52 opportunities, if we do not show up for worship, we don't get grace that Sunday as brought to him in the body at worship. I'm not saying that God does not show us grace. It's just that we missed the grace that comes in worship. When we come late, when we come late, we let pass whatever benefit he extended in that earlier portion of the liturgy, right? Whether it was the call to worship, the confession, and cleansing, we missed that. There's grace in that. If you walk out, that then too can be problematic for you have removed yourself from the worship of Christ. You have walked out on him in, in a sense most assuredly, he's a grace-giving God. And sometimes the body has needs, I understand. We show him the honor that is due him by our eager, though, our eager and expectant presence. If worship were just about us grouping together on a Sunday to sing a few songs, pray and listen to a sermon and enjoy the fellowship of friends. If that's all it was, our doing, then we might as well disband and quit meeting. If God is not meeting with us to accomplish his purposes, then what a waste of a Sunday morning. Am I right? We could sleep in, maybe even do a devotional. Read the newspaper, snuggle up with our spouse, have a, an extra cup of coffee, whatever. Those are all fun things to do. 
Now, if, if this is just something we're concocting, thinking maybe he's listening, we'll at least get to talk about him and talk with each other about It's not worth that. But the historical universal church has never believed that worship was merely believers throwing something together for each other that God might like. Rather, the church has long believed that worship on the Lord's Day is something God is doing for the good of His people. Something vital. In worship, God gives and we receive, but you have to be here to get it, right? So I want to take a little time this morning and go over the different parts of that Lord's Day service. We follow a liturgy. I used that word a moment ago. Liturgy is the word that means an arrangement followed for public worship. We've got an arrangement. And every church has a liturgy, although some would be proudly saying, we don't, we don't follow an order, we let God and His Spirit move us, etc. Right. They might not follow the same arrangement every Sunday, but every church usually plans a worship service to include certain elements. And each church believes that God would want these elements of worship to be arranged in a certain way. Well, I want you to understand what our way of arranging the worship service is. It's pretty historical in its roots. There's no great new novelty here. And it does recognize that God comes each Sunday and does things in a certain order. So here's a short explanation. If you open that bulletin, if you don't have it out now, please do that. You'll notice that there are five bold and underlined headings, each beginning with the letter C. A little bit of alliteration there to help the mind, I guess. Those are the steps of our liturgy. And so the worship service technically begins at the call to worship. The call to worship. That's the first bold and underlined item. There's a word above that that says welcome. That's not part of worship. That's not worship. During the welcome portion, we kind of get settled, right? Organize our children, adjust diaper bags. Some might still be coming in from the foyer. We've got purses, we've got gum, we've got mints, we've got tissues, all these things. Tracy has a way of laying out her bulletin in a certain way in the books and all that. And then we also read some announcements that pertain to our church or congregation or maybe local events that are going on. That's all part of the welcome. But worship has not begun. Myers, again, Jeffrey Myers, feels that announcements okay, should come before the beginning of the worship service because they have nothing to do with public worship whatsoever. Myers says everything done after the call to worship is done for a, re a reason and, it, and in its proper place. So it's after those secretarial things, let's say, those matters of the church that the Lord's service actually begins. And to start the service, God calls us, right? 
calls us, the congregation, to come into his heavenly and spiritual presence for worship. That's where we are now, though we don't see it or don't often think about it that way. Since it's called the call to worship, it's something you should ideally hear. You should be present to hear it. The call occurs when the the minister, whether it's Bob or myself at this point, reads a verse or passage in which God has called his people to worship in the past, or, or reads a verse or passage that describes the heart and the will of God for his people, so that you and I, we are contemplating him as we present ourselves to him. Then, how do we respond to that call? Well, you join with the congregation and sing a song of thanksgiving or a song of of praise to him. And that's our first hymn. It's our response to a movement he took. His call, we responded. We're glad we've come to worship him. We exalt him in the hymn, or should be. And I, I tell you what. My problem always is when I'm sitting in a pew and singing a song is to not really sing the song in my head. I'm singing and saying words. I'm trying to get through it for the other stuff to come. Wrong-headed. And I have seen people in the past, older people now have mostly passed away, reading the hymns we're going to sing, ahead of time, so that they can kind of put their minds on on it when they're singing it. That's a good idea. Some of you have heard the song so many times before you kind of know what they mean, so you can get into it, right? But we're glad we have come to worship. It's our response to his movement, this, this hymn. Like he's our husband, all right, reaching out his hand in the call to worship to dance with us. And we are his wife. And our our proper response is to follow his lead throughout the whole dance of the service's liturgy. He calls to worship, and we join him. And he leads from there. However, if you look at your bulletin, the next bold item in the liturgy or list says confessing, confessing and cleansing. Okay, I say however, because though he's reached out his hand, we still kind of got to know who we are. We still have to be honest about how we go about things in life and with him. And it's here that we're told how, how sinful creatures should come before God. We should come humbly. Right? Confessing, confessing and cleansing. Confessing our sin and our unworthiness. We should be genuinely contrite. Real sins that we're thinking about. Not just, oh Lord, I'm such a sinner. Uh, but name the sins to him. He knows what they are. You come and clean. We, we should be genuinely contrite. We are not worthy to take his hand, Really? But don't misunderstand. We anticipate this is going to be good. We're here because we know it's good for us. That God will be merciful. 
to us based upon the work of someone else, Jesus Christ, but we confess ourselves as indeed sinners who can count particular sins. If honest, we're sinners who depend upon the Son of God's work. And so the minister instructs the congregation with Scripture to set the tone, maybe, right? If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us, and so on. So we confess silently our waywardness, our sins, and then we sing again a hymn of confession, or perhaps the hymn is of God's forgiveness, which is great, and we anticipate forgiveness, which is both things I think would be profitable for us if that hymn was picked and chosen based upon that part of our service. And our accompanists have been instructed, and they pretty much do pick hymns related to the order of worship. So following that second hymn, the minister announces cleansing, the cleansing part of confessing and cleansing by declaring God's greeting. And the greeting is grace and peace to you from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a biblical greeting. Paul uses it more than once. And those words of greeting announce to us, body and soul, that God receives us in Christ as his forgiven people. He reminds us that our sins are pardoned. The confessing and cleansing portion is when Christ, our high priest, continues to administer his sacrifice, his past sacrifice to us. Imagine if life is up, up to you and me to make our own way, right? To erase our own many sins. Well, all we could offer up is a pile of filthy rags. But Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. He is sufficient, and so it becomes grace and peace to you, right? Following that cleansing, okay, our announcement of pardon, the service moves to a time of consecration. And you see that as the next bold item in the bulletin. The word consecrate, it means to cut and manage, to cut and manage, similar to the Old Testament sacrifices. You are to be cut and managed. This is what happens when his word is read and preached. God uses it, even though the minister is imperfect and can get in the middle and get in the way at times, which is a, an obligation for us not to get in the way of his word. But God uses it as his double-edged sword, separating bone from marrow. His spirit applies his word to encourage you, to instruct you, rebuke you, to train you in righteousness. So in this part of the service, consecration, we hear scripture read. Okay, first in the God's will for our lives. I just read to you Exodus 20, version of the law of God. But here, other passages might be read as well to instruct us how to behave as God's people. The Ten Commandments were often the uh, 
the fair for this part of the service. God's will for our lives is not something newly added. It was and has been in the Reformed, Christian Reformed churches for a very long time. But it's not the only thing that we read there. And it's after the reading of his will for us that, that we make our petitions in the form of a congregational prayer. Now, many of these prayers you know, should be submitted in the form, as I mentioned, of the soul's deepest needs, right? We offer ourselves maybe in this prayer, and maybe we do it without speaking it, for dissection. We offer ourselves to him for dissection. This cutting and arranging. Our need to repent, our need to understand his word, to better obey it. These are all things to consider here in the congregational prayer. Those sensitive things that you don't really want to say out loud, that you are perhaps your greatest need before God, in the time of consecration. They're not meant for public consumption because you know that public consumption leads to gossip and slander and gets around town, right? Those things should still be prayed to him. But we can also respond with our other concerns, as we did today, or praises for all that God has done. Now, some congregations will place this congregational prayer in a different part of the service, like during communion, okay, where you comes up later, but you're going back and forth a little bit. You share your request for God. He's, he's communing with us at the table, etc. But for us, at this point, at least, in alto congregational prayer has been placed at the time God is consecrating us. Then after the prayer time, we sing our third hymn, and then the the minister reads and gives explanation to the congregation from a particular portion of Scripture, and that is the sermon, the time of the sermon. The sermon is preceded and followed by a prayer that God would apply his word effectively to the benefit of each congregant. Following these events, we respond to God's consecration by giving. We give the offering. We give in token form to the work of God's church and Christ's kingdom. In our bulletins right now, it says offering. I'll have, I'm going to have Brenna change that to say tithes and offerings, plural. But we don't want to confuse people that the offering portion always goes to something other than the church. Okay, We know that now. Maybe we've always known that. But we'll, we'll make that change in the bulletin. When we give in tithes and offering, what it does is it declares God's ownership of us. And, and I often say that, and, and Bob may too. Um, we're glad that he cleanses us and wants to consecrate us, and we give out of gratitude. We testify here that God owns all and that his purposes are our priority. Finally, Christ prepares the table for us. It's the moment in which he wishes to have communion with us or tend to it. He feeds us bread and wine as a sacrament, signifying and sealing to us that we depend upon him, his body and blood, 
for all that pertains to life, a life of worship. He gives us these and says, take, eat, for this is my body. And take, drink, for this is my blood. And we partake. He nourishes us by the sacrament of bread and wine. We feed on Christ then spiritually. In 1 Corinthians 11.26, the Apostle Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I gave a sermon one time, and Don Middlestack came up to me afterwards. I never heard that explained this way before, but this is basically what I said. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I, I asked the question, who do you proclaim Christ's death to if you're doing this? Who do you proclaim his death to? Each other? Somewhat. The angels who are present at our worship, according to 1 Corinthians 11, did you know they're attending to? Maybe they'd surely get delight in the fact that we're proclaiming the bread and the cup. I suggest that when you eat the bread and drink the cup, you're proclaiming the Lord's death to the Father in heaven. To the Father in heaven. You're announcing that His Son's death is what you depend on. Following communion is the commission. It's the part where God sends us out into the world to live with Him and before Him for another week. And that's our mission. It's done when the minister proclaims God's blessing now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all and so on. That's the commission. We follow that blessing by singing a short song of praise to God, it's a natural response by God's people to such a wonderful God and what He's just done. We used to call it a doxology. I named it a short song of praise here, for that's what doxology means, and most people don't know what it means. Finally, we take a moment for silence at the end of our worship. It's a time to reflect before fellowship begins outside of this corporate ceremony. And fellowship is wonderful. It's as if the song, however, this moment of silence, it's as if the song has ended and the dance is over and the couples part and they go back to join and chat with the other wedding guests. So then... God brings us his grace in worship. We benefit. He needs nothing. And God has given grace to his people in this particular way week after week since the creation of the world. Finally, I suggest you regularly think about what is happening in these movements of the dance of worship so that you know your part It'll make you a better worshiper. Now, if all I ever had to do is sit in the pew, right, and that's not all I had to do, but if I didn't have to do the minister work, it could just be a congregant taking in and worshiping. I love this idea. 
that I'm about to share. And I'm going to close with this, something C.S. Lewis taught. I put a great C.S. Lewis quote in the bulletin that's based upon this idea. Don't read it now. Let me just explain something, because this isn't entirely that quote. Lewis says that a congregation, it, it, it must know the steps in order to know how to dance, in order to be able to dance. But he suggests that as long as you notice and have to count the steps, you're not dancing yet, but only learning to dance. And he says the best liturgy would be one we were almost unaware of so that our attention would have been on God the entire time. And to get to that place in a congregation's worship, Lewis calls for permanence, uniformity. Don't change things in the Sunday service. He actually says he could make do with almost any kind of service, whatever, if only it would stay put. But Lewis, Lewis states if each form is snatched away just when I'm beginning to feel at home in it, then I can never make any progress in the art of worship. You must give men a chance to acquire the trained habit. And so this is your chance, right? Give men a chance to acquire the trained habit. This is our chance. This is our liturgy. We stick to the order of worship found in your bulletins. We don't want to try keep trying different things and require you to learn new steps. Rather, we want the service to become second nature so that your heart, mind, and soul can be on God and then effortlessly follow his lead. Let us pray. Lord, I ask that you by your spirit and, by your, and in your people and with the use of your word at different places in this sermon would affect effectively work in us, that you would continue in this consecration moment. In Jesus' name, amen.